0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's a warm welcome to Tuesday Hometime on a cold winter's day. And what better way to start the program than with Mr Kevin Healy and
2: Week, it was. A week, journalist. Now, when I'm trying to get my head around this dilemma that has become the debate we have to have about COVID 19 elimination or suppression, death and disease or profit, the health of the people or the health of the economy. No, no, I'm being too dramatic, letting my biases show. The caring business class would say it's a debate we don't need to have because there's nothing to debate. We can't let the economy suffer from disease, from the elimination of the disease. Uh, but that means people will suffer, die. We put to Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Worcester Cost Workers. We have to do all that we can to prevent that. She was deeply concerned for the public health. So that means we have to adopt an elimination policy, Jennifer. Uh, Let me clarify all that we can without interrupting business more than we already have. And don't forget, if profits were to collapse, then that would do untold damage to the health of those in the boardrooms. that Their hearts mightn't stand it, mightn't be able to take the disaster. Do you want to see hard-working company directors suffering because a few selfish people think it's better not to get sick themselves? It took me a while to ask the next question because I had to get my mind around that one for a bit. So, so what message do you have for those selfish people? We have to know we've got to live with this thing and or die, Jennifer. There's no life on a dead economy. And don't forget, we the caring business class have centuries of experience in suppression. If we can suppress the wages and lives of the lazy, avaricious workers, whom we so care about and exist only to provide with the dignity of work, then we can assist the government in suppressing the disease. The government, totally neutral in all this, agreed with the caring business class as big supremo Scuttlebend Maul aka Scummo, said a strategy to eliminate coronavirus would cause the unemployment rate to double and ruin the economy. Ah, uh, what about the disease rate doubling and ruining lots of lives? That's exactly what suppression is all about. A balance been protecting the economy from illness and protecting people from an ill economy. And New South Wales Supremo Gladys berry them iterated Scarlett M's a.k.a. Scummo's, reasoned argument. She would not lock down the economy nor embrace an eradication strategy. So there it is. As the caring business class and governments, those who know about these things, explain there is no debate to be had other than from selfish people who think only about themselves and their self-interest. Elimination is impossible. Uh, But New Zealand has eliminated as best as they can without a vaccine and its its economy is rolling along. New Zealand cheated, Scuttle then spoke for the knowledgeable. Uh, How? It adopted an elimination policy However, showing his concern for those who survived the suppression, Scuttlebem announced this new addition to the list of job, 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 job programs this week, Job Trainer. $1.5 to pick up the wages of apprentices, overcoming the caring employer's major objection to taking on apprentices, the fact that at the end of the week the bloody tyros expect to be paid. Uh, So what are the jobs that these people will be trained for that will be required in three or four years? We asked the Minister for being totally incompetent, Michaela Kosch's workers. Good well-paid jobs. Uh, Yes, but, but doing what? Work. Oh, yes, she's on top of all that. Jennifer said the caring business class welcomed the government paying their wages bill. Eliminating our requirement to pay wages is one elimination we do support. She was all smiles. Of course, given the planned nature of capitalism, by the time the job trainers are job trained, it might turn out to be another to add to the job, 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 job list. Job destroyer. The construction industry caring employers should suffer no penalty from the coronavirus by not suffering any penalty while lazy avaricious workers should suffer a penalty by not having a penalty. That dilemma sounds like a trick question doesn't it but but it's not. It's very Excellent, very sensible. It's a brilliant idea by the Master Builders Profits Association and the Housing Industry Profits Association and their members because the pandemic has slowed down the wage slavery, or sorry, no, the, the building process and progress. See, Distancing in lips slows things down, causing significant delays, pushing up subcontractors' costs due to, in some instances, either having to pay overtime or penalty rates to their employees so they can complete their work without causing disruptions to other trades on the job. Tony Grippy, real name of Richard Cook's Construction, a most unfortunate name, I would have thought, spoke for the caring employers, and worse... Regular cleaning of lunchrooms and workstations between shifts has also led to significant disruptions to workflow. It is my experience that this has also had the effect of slowing down and reducing productivity on construction sites. Well, it wouldn't be slowing down productivity in the boardrooms, would it, where the real hard work is done. But don't our hearts go out to the poor dears. Always innovative, showing why their caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers are lazy, avaricious workers, they have found a most inspired solution. Get rid of overtime and penalty rates. Longer hours to compensate for all those delays, but no penalty rates, because that would be so grossly unfair to the caring employers. After all, they're not responsible for the pandemic, a sensible, logical solution And what do the evil unions say to that? You guessed it. The evil unions oppose it. Who'd want to be a caring employer in this environment? After all, the puppets associations told us thousands of jobs are at risk and they need temporary flexibility to weather the storm. And the evil recalcitrant union's unreasonable response, caring employers were exploiting the virus to attack wages and conditions. They screamed, what other choice have caring employers got? Never any give or take with evil unions, is there? And even demanding to see pay slips and wage records, none of their bloody business. And after caring employers slave for hours, picking up a win-win solution to the problem. Yet there are still those committed to socialism, misguided souls, and in the sacrifices great socialists make, in their never-ending fight to defend working people, former socialist big supremo little kebby rod for the workers and partner to raise reigning profits have just bought themselves a little Noosa beachfront pad to ensure they have a roof over their heads, and we can't begrudge them for that. For a mere $17 Well, I now have to flog the Brisbane CBD apartment they bought four years ago for a lousy 8.2 mil. Five bedrooms and seven bathrooms. It has. Not sure why you'd need seven bathrooms, but little Kevvy and Therese's new humble workers' cottage little pad has space for only seven vehicles. Not sure why you'd... No, never mind. A massive balcony, an opulent marble ensuite, floor to ceiling, glass enclosed dining room, panoramic ocean views home theatre, study, media room, and a climate-controlled wine cellar. They need all of that. Need to struggle along with all of that, because right now they're stuck in Trouvlawazi and can't return to their other home in New York. Don't great working-class heroes make giant sacrifices for their beliefs? Oh those with a few little rooms at home, as the palace letters revealed Her Most Gracious Majesty had no idea which we didn't need 45-year-old correspondents to tell us, in this case, no idea of the dismissal of a rabid socialist threat to the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world's hegemony in true blue Aussie, no idea other than it was done in her name. He was her cur. Her most gracious has come up with a nice little earner at the palace to subsidize the huge doll payment she gets from her subjects. A $73 a bottle Royal Collection Trust gin flavored with plants from the palace garden, which can be snapped up at the palace shop. "'Apparently she's inherited her mother's taste in the liquid juniper berry. "'Was that smile with inbred grin, or just the sign of too much gin? "'Or, more likely to be true, a combination of the two. "'Anyway, as Humphrey mused in Casablanca, "'of all the gin joints in all the world, the Buckingham gin joint. "'I'm sure on your behalf, listener, we wish her most gracious well "'in her latest in... "'Wolf from the Door.'" Finally, apropos of nothing, uh, in one result of suppression trumping ele- elimination, SBS News the other night told us three meatworks had become COVID hotspots. And get the full story on the feed, which I just found interesting. Oh, speaking of trumping, we we haven't mentioned him, but do we have to? No, nah, it's probably better that way. Good afternoon,
1: and thanks to Mr. Kevin Healy. On the program two weeks ago, Peter Boyle from Green Left Weekly spoke about the treatment of undocumented migrants in Malaysia under the cover of the COVID-19 pandemic. In May, Malaysian authorities executed four immigration crackdowns and arrested over 2,000 undocumented migrants. Among them were asylum seekers and 98 children. This took place despite the promise by authorities on the 27th of March that they would not, quote, focus on their documents. The most extreme case that could happen is a 14-day quarantine, unquote. According to Al Jazeera, now undocumented foreign workers are scared for their future out of work and forced to live in cramped conditions, some are starving and dependent on charities to survive. We begin this further interview with Peter by focusing on the six journalists, five Australians, being investigated on possible charges of sedition and defamation, and possibly the breaches of the country's Communications and Multimedia Act could also be considered. Peter, the journalists were ordered to report to the police headquarters a week ago. What's known about the questioning and the likelihood of charges against them?
3: Well, I haven't heard yet whether they they are being charged, so they're still, I guess they're still investigating unless something happened overnight. So I think the situation, as far as I know, remains the same.
1: Just how serious are the charges that they could be facing?
3: I don't think that the charges will be very serious, and you know, in actual fact it's very unlikely. They will personally face um, any terrible consequences for what they've done. I think the more important thing here is that it is uh, sending a very strong signal out, not so much just to foreign journalists, but to all journalists and to, to and everybody else who is trying to, you know, be a critical voice. That they, they, they better watch out, because to take the step as they have done of investigating foreign journalists for a story like this says, you know, we're not afraid go for, for these journalists, you know, and and they include Australian journalists which is sort of, they're more likely to be a harder target for the government. It says, well, if you're a local journalist, uh, we are going to go harder against you. The cases taken up against uh, Malaysia Kini and its, its editor, Stephen Gunn, are more serious. Their charges are at this stage content. They arise out of... Uh, number of comments by their readers made online questioning the correctness of court decisions now this should be a normal part this should be part of our freedom in, in, in any country to be able to criticize a decision of court i mean particularly malaysian politics that the whole history of the courts being used against anwar ibrahim the leader of opposition who's done two rounds of jail on what looked like trumped-up charges, the constant use of the courts in a, in a very political way, the selective appointment, political appointment of judges. It's just normal to be able to say that, that a decision was wrong, that they should be able to argue that there's injustice. And if that's criminalised, it's a, it's a lot that you can't say. That's not the full extent of the clampdown against journalists. Charges of sedition are coming up uh, more and more often, sedition is, is now quite widely defined. So, uh, by the courts, uh, you know, it could encompass a lot of things.
1: Have people actually been found guilty of sedition, though?
3: Not of late, but a lot of people have been charged, investigated. You know, this is a fairly recent ramping up of this under the current political government. Earlier, during the time of Najib, both national, I mean. A lot of the with the sedition, including cartoonists. And one of the problems, and I, and I think this is what covering um, the story comes out, is that in the brief period of the Pakistan Harapan government that uh, replaced uh, Najib's Barisan national government, the opportunity to get rid of these undemocratic laws was missed. In fact, some new laws were brought in that that vastly extend the reach of the law, particularly in the sphere of uh, digital media. And of course, digital media now is the thing. A lot of freedom of expression actually takes place on digital media, and it's quite hard to contain. With the case of Malaysia King, it is going to be possible to easily criminalize a media organization not just for what the media organisation says, but what its readers say in comments, then it's going to be difficult. It's true that that there are, you know, regulations in place applying to even things like social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc., that place some duty on a media organisation promptly remove certain posts by readers. If they are you know of seriously inflammatory or you know that they, they might cause some great harm, you can't make it in an online media platform, like you can't make the uh, public absolutely and completely responsible for everything every opinion that readers say that's second to the question about what sort of behaviour is being criminalised here and in this case if it's if it's if it's criticism of court decisions, I think you know, that's a huge infringement. On freedom of expression.
1: Do some of these laws stem from colonial times?
3: Some of them do. is are very old, old law that comes from British times. But the most notorious anti-democratic law in Malaysia for a long time was the Internal Security Act. All the leaders of, the, of um, what now again the opposition, and many of the people who are in civil society who are fighting for cases of justice to the environment have all spent time locked up without trial under what was called Internal Security Act. And and there was a huge campaign to get rid of it. And in 2012, so this is before the the fall of the Najib government, it was eventually repealed. But a new law was brought in called uh, SOSMART, it it's Security Ordinance or something, effectively replicates the powers of indefinite, effectively indefinite has been renewed on a more regular basis, tension with our trial. And it has been used uh, against a number of people, most spectacularly, a group of people who were accused almost a decade after the destruction, the massacre of the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, accused of supporting a terrorist group. So like, well, a decade later, a whole bunch of people were arrested under SOSMA to accuse of, you know, supporting terrorism. What would be the point of that? Except say, we've, we've got this power, and can use it. Sadly, uh, that happened under the Pakatan Harapan government. So, you know, it underlines that you know, there was an opportunity there to actually get rid of this ISA Mark II which is SOSMA, but it was an opportunity lost.
1: Who is this new government in Malaysia? What's their background?
3: This new government arises out of a split in the Pakatan Harapan government, thereby costing its uh, parliamentary majority. It's a reflection on two things. It reflects the fact that Pakatan Harapan, which came together, I guess on the head of the huge, both say, democracy movement, in order to win the previous elections made some alliances with people who were of, you know, quite mixed backgrounds. So, the main alliance was with former Prime Minister Mohammed Mateh, In this time, of course, was uh, quite a repressive an ruler and was actually responsible for the persecution of Ibrahim. ibrahim So, the primary deal was with him. Now, he brought in a new party of his own which was made up of people who were disgruntled members of the, the old regime, if you like, disgruntled members of AMNA, which was the lead party in the Barisan National government. the former Prime Minister, the corrupt former Prime Minister Najib. Is, he exercised a lot of power in Pakatan Harapan because he was seen as the, uh, the critical element that allowed them to win the last election, particularly by bringing in the vote of the technically Malay, section of the population. So he had a lot of power. His tiny party, made up of disgruntled old regime members, you know, were given lots of positions in parliament. Now, the bulk of his own party then basically split off, Thakaran Harapan, dumped him, dumped Mahathir, and went to the, to the king and, uh, with letters of support from members of the old, the old guard, the old regime. Uh, was appointed new Prime Minister, and so his name is is Nuruddin Yassin, the new Prime Minister. And so his government is a government that has come in uh, without being tested in an election. Its opponents in Malaysia is a backdoor government. It's in power largely with the support of uh, the old regime, that is UMNO, the party that Basmahate and Najib came out from, and the Islamic party now is in an alliance with, um, at the height of the birth of the movement, the Islamic party was in the opposition, so there's been a switch, and, and that's basically the situation. So now, we have this new government, seems to have a plan, a new minority party-based government, uh, which seems to have a plan to pull together a more lasting alliance with the old guard by... Letting off, or at least letting off lightly, Najib and the other, his other former ministers who are now on trial for corruption, fraud, etc. From, from the, the whole kleptocracy experience in Malaysia over the last few years. So there's certainly a suspicion of members uh, of the opposition, particularly from the left in Malaysia, that, um, that, that this is what's going on here. He's demonstrating that we can do two things. One, he can uh, let off the kleptocrats, and two, he can show that he'll be able to repress any response or anger at you know, letting off these kleptocrats. So that's certainly the message I'm getting from speaking to leaders from the Socialist Party of Nature. And it's quite a high, widely held opinion that this is, in the opposition, that this is connected, getting the kleptocrats free and the new repression. They're part of the same package. Ironically, it's a, it's a big gamble for um, Amri because there's, if there's another election and basically we all got sweet on the results, and this is a possibility because Pakistan Harapan is in, is in pieces and internally is divided by an ongoing contest between Amri Ibrahim and Teh. If they come back, they might say to the current Prime Minister, you know, we don't need you public's not privy to all sorts of private deals that may be being done. I guess we'll see.
1: Well, where does all this leave the left in Malaysia, in particular the Socialist Party?
3: They are very concerned about these developments and they they feel that it's very difficult actually to fight this, particularly because it's all happening in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, where there are still very strong restrictions on movements, assembly, because of... uh, um regulations that have been brought in called control orders so it's very hard to organize protests Uh, a few have been have been held small ones the covid regulations have been used against political actions one example was a very small extremely safe picket organized by the union organizing some hospital workers cleaners and janitors you know everyone was masked and spaced out and the police came in and arrested their leaders and some of their uh, and their uh, the other picketers and charged them with flouting COVID safety. Uh, then they were promptly chained together, stuck in the back of a police van, you know, right next to each other until they were released on bail. They were kept in much un- un- unsafe conditions than they were at the protests. And of course, we've seen this sort of hypocrisy with yes. over policing and and COVID uh, kind of regulations here in Australia too.
1: With expressing concern for journalists and activists, we mustn't forget those who were the target of the government and they were the undocumented foreign workers and I would imagine other workers as well.
3: That, if you like, was the, the, the big um, anti-democratic incident that preceded this attack on journalists and it, it, was, a, it was a huge clampdown on uh, um, migrant workers, documented and undocumented, uh, many of them refugees who live in a grey area of the law in Malaysia. So Malaysia is not a signatory of the of the Refugee Convention, so basically, as recognize re- refugees, even the ones who are registered with the UNHCR, they are documented or undocumented. And on top of that, the Malaysian economy, a bit like the Singapore economy, is actually highly dependent on super exploited poorly paid migrant workers who are both documented and undocumented and they come from you know, all around the place, from indonesia from from bangladesh and from a whole range of of other asian countries but amongst them there's a very group uh, significant group of um, refugees who over the years have have fled and because Malaysia is quite close boats often land on its shores in an earlier time, the Rohingya were, were welcomed and the Muslim government made a big show of support for the Rohingya cause on the basis of supporting, you know, fellow Muslim uh, refugees. When COVID came up, a couple of, they, for some reason or another, they very quickly became the sort of scapegoats for COVID. Very often the, the, the racial scapegoating, I think we've seen it even in this country, a little half-truth grows into something completely irrational. Obviously, because these people are, you know, living in this sort of grey area of the law, they're not only super exploited, exploited getting paid very low wages, but they're then forced to live in the cramp and, you know, the cheapest possible accommodation, and therefore, it's, you know, clusters do happen. Actually, the main cluster that drew the public's attention came out of a, a sort of a cultural semi-religious gathering there was a big cluster at the beginning of early in, in the pandemic, and so that's when the Rohingya got tagged. And then there was a horrible, nasty scapegoating campaign on, on social media, that built it up, and eventually it became a you know a political phenomenon, which the government decided to come behind. Around May Day, a massive sweep was carried out in Kuala Lumpur in particular, in the area where many of the Rohingya and and, and other migrant undocumented workers live. The police sealed it off and a couple of thousand migrant workers were arrested and taken away into, um, refugee detention camps to completely close off to of the public. Nobody can visit. UNHCR can't visit. And as a result, you know, they were taken away because, you know, under the guise of, of dealing with COVID. But, um, you know, more cases and more clusters break out within those detention centers. This made the situation even more, you know, an issue and government decided to dig in. Mm-hmm. And um and and therefore the criminalization of the Al Jazeera reporters, including the Australian reporters, for reporting on this treatment in Rohingya was seen as very sensitive by the government. There have been also other things which they're planting now. actually, you know, in, in trying to try and cover the Rohingya story, I found it very difficult as to people, particularly those who work closely with the Rohingya community, because apart from um, from the, this huge sweep and arrest of people, you know, approximately 2,000 people now locked up, and, and basically the government says if, if they don't have papers, we are going to deport them back to Myanmar or Burma. And they have done deportations before Rohingya, one or two, but you know, this would be mass deportation. But in addition to that, over the last few weeks, there have been uh, reports of turnbacks of boats of of Rohingya refugees off the coast, uh, off the northern coast. These boats of of Rohingya refugees uh, had often been basically floating in the middle of the ocean for months and months and months, and people were in very bad conditions. One report was that about 70% of the people on board were so sick, they they could not walk, they had to be carried off. The boats landed because they were leaking, and, you know, they were about to sink. So that they would fix the boats, put these people back on board and cast them out to sea. You know. Because this whole area has been treated as such a sensitive issue, I think that there's not a lot of reports coming out about uh, these developments. Uh, and, and they need to. Because the Ringo refugees, you know, they've been triply whacked. First of all, they flee persecution in their own country. Sometimes they've gone to fled to Bangladesh, where, you know, the biggest, the world's biggest and most crowded refugee camp, Cox's Bazaar, exists. And they can't survive there. And the fear of, of the pandemic is so massive. They have then sometimes borrowed money and paid money to get, you know, one of their families to escape on a boat to Malaysia. So this is a huge story which is also being suppressed, so we can't forget that uh, you know that it's it's one of the casualties of the, uh, the clampdown and on the media and on journalism and reporting in Malaysia.
1: Okay, thanks once again, Peter. Thank you. I've been speaking with Peter Boyle from Greenleaf Weekly. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Today with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, the topic for discussion is the upcoming next referendum for self-determination in New Caledonia. But first the issue will be the reshuffle of the cabinet in Paris of the President Emmanuel Macron. And Nick, how does the latter impact on the former?
4: It's an interesting time for the French government because the outgoing Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, in France put an enormous amount of time and energy personally into preparations for the first referendum on self-determination in New Caledonia, which was held in November 2018. For listeners who've listened to this program regularly, they know that the situation in New Caledonia has been going on for many decades, where the Kanak independence movement in the 1980s, actively campaigning, protesting for independence, led to a series of agreements, including an agreement known as the Noumea Accord in 1998, that led to up to three referenda on self-determination. That deal in 1998 has now come to to a head 20 years on. The first referendum, although a majority of New Caledonians, 56% of New Caledonians voted against independence, the result of just over 43% in favour of independence really shocked most commentators. The right, the colonial settlers, the French government, many pundits thought that the first referendum in 2018 would be a strategic defeat for the independence movement, the Canaq Socialist National Liberation Front. That's the FLNKS, their initials, but it wasn't. Uh, although they lost, 43% is close enough to 50 to inspire people to mobilise again for a second referendum, which is due now on the 4th of October. So the change of prime ministership in Paris, which has just occurred uh, earlier this month, is significant because Edward Philippe, as Prime Minister, did an enormous amount, held a series of meetings to set the parameters for the first referendum. Now not only the Prime Minister, but the overseas minister and other senior officials have been changed by President Macron. Um, so that has obvious implications for France domestically. But just three months away from the next referendum, which will be, as I say, in early October, it really throws a cat amongst the pigeons in terms of preparations for the referendum, particularly in the middle of the um, um, coronavirus pandemic.
1: Why the changes, Nick?
4: It's uh, a complex situation in France at the moment. One of the features of President Macron's victory three years ago in the French presidential elections was that he presented himself as uh, almost a man above politics. His movement, newly created, called La République en Marche, the French Republic, on the, on the move, presented itself as neither left nor right. And in both the French presidential elections, where he won, and in subsequent legislative elections uh, for the French National Assembly and Senate, his newly created movement built a serious blow to the old established centre-left and centre-right parties. Um, the previous Socialist Party president, uh, François Hollande, got down to about 6% in the opinion polls. Now, you know, in Australia, people don't like Tony Abbott or don't like Gough Whitlam or whatever, but they rarely get down to 6% public approval. And the Socialist Party was devastated by Macron's steps. But also the centre-right party, uh, Les Républicains, uh, was also badly damaged. Three years on, however, the gloss of Macron as president has worn off. Macron, despite presenting himself as as, um, above politics in some ways, it's really a continuation of the sort of neoliberal policies that we've seen from successive French governments. And Macron launched uh, a number of steps to reform the public services, policies which, you know, disadvantaged the most vulnerable in the community. He wanted to break the power of trade unions in areas like uh, public transport, so the Railways Workers Union particularly, which are strong in France despite very low levels of unionisation. And there was an enormous public reaction, both from the trade union movement, but also much broader. And people may have followed the what were called the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests. These were people from rural and regional France, often from the periphery of central decision-making, who rioted and protested against Macron's policies, not just against him personally, but against the broader French political establishment. So Macron's facing significant problems... Domestically, this has overlapped with the COVID pandemic, which has revealed fault lines of class, of race, of gender in every society. France is no different. There was 130,000 cases of of COVID-19, nearly 30,000 deaths in France. And so Macron, like many world leaders, has suffered from the failure in Europe to address this in ways that we don't see in Australia and New Zealand. So Macron facing presidential elections in two years' time and facing a resurgent right-wing, the party Rassemblement National, uh, the National Rally, which is just a rebranded version of the Front National, the National Front, the extreme right-wing party, led by Marine Le Pen, will be contesting the elections again. And so the government reshuffle at the moment is, I think, Macron reshuffling his prime minister, his cabinet, in the National Assembly to protect his right flank against, um, uh, you know, anger from a a number of fronts over his policies.
1: Well, as you said, there's two positions that have impact on New Caledonia, and one is the the new Prime Minister and the other is the new Overseas Minister. How is that going to impact, particularly on New Caledonia?
4: Well, it's significant that there's um, a change As you say, the Prime Minister, incoming Jean Castex, is a French technocrat, formerly a member of the Republicans' party, so the right-wing equivalent of our liberal coalition parties, fairly new to the agenda around New Caledonia, so the Prime Minister is really not as well-versed in the issues as um, Edouard Philippe, the outgoing Prime Minister. As you say, there's an overseas minister. That's different from the foreign minister in French tradition. The French have a foreign minister who... As obviously relates to overseas countries, but they have an overseas minister who's responsible for what they call the overseas collectivities. These are the French dependencies, the French colonies around the world, in the Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean, Reunion, Guadeloupe, in the Caribbean, um, and in the Pacific, there are three French Polynesia, New Caledonia, and Wallis and Futuna. So the overseas minister is responsible really for that. We have a similar system. We have the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, and also Minister for International Development in the Pacific, uh, Alex Hawke at the moment in the Morrison government. And this young technocrat named uh, Sébastien Le Corneau has been appointed to the overseas minister's position. He's 34 years old, he's a bright young thing, um, and is a man on the way up I think in French politics. Um, Once again a man of the right, uh, but who's joined the uh, uh, Macron movement um, coming out of the Republican Party, the, the Conservative Party uh, in French politics. There's been a lot of complaint in France that for the first time in more than a decade, the overseas minister hasn't come from one of the overseas territories. It's become a tradition in recent times that the overseas minister should be a politician, a senior leader who's come from one of the overseas dependencies going back a decade, three in a row, came from Guadeloupe. Uh, The outgoing overseas minister, Anik Girardin, uh, came from saint Pierre and Miquelon, which is France's uh, colony in the Atlantic, a very small, isolated colony off the coast of uh, Canada. You know, to go back on that tradition of giving greater authority to leaders, you know, who have some deeper knowledge of the overseas agenda is many commentators in France are suggesting a setback in the attention that Macron is giving to the region. And that's a concern for French Polynesia. For example, where Macron was due to visit in April this year uh, to meet with French Polynesian leaders and address a number of outstanding uh, gender items and uh, to hold the France-Susseania summit because of the COVID pandemic. that uh, That summit was postponed, possibly till October this year, maybe further on. French Polynesians are a bit anxious about getting hundreds of French bureaucrats coming with the president at the time, given there's 30,000 deaths from COVID in France. You know, Le Corneau's appointment, people are saying, well, what does he really know about the region? He has travelled in the Pacific. In fact, I interviewed him as a journalist in 2017. He led the French delegation to the Pacific Islands Forum meeting in Apia, Samoa. As a junior minister, a junior secretary of state, he came to head the French delegation But uh, he's not really been deeply involved in the complex negotiations that have taken place. And that's pretty important for New Caledonia. You know, there are complex problems to solve in the referendum on self-determination. And just three months out from a referendum, in the middle of a pandemic, it's going to be complex to run a proper referendum. Um, and, And I think political leaders across the spectrum are a bit anxious about this change uh, which is very much related to domestic issues and to the needs of people in the territories
1: well with the virus are these ministers able to travel to the Pacific and in particular New Caledonia in the months getting up to the election the referendum
4: well this is a big problem for the referendum I, I was in New Caledonia reporting for uh, five weeks before the referendum um, in 2018 and one of the features was it that Edouard Philippe, the outgoing Prime Minister, had appointed a fairly elaborate system to ensure that the referendum, you know, efficiently. The French were very worried that um, if there were questions about the the running of it, the, who could vote, uh, whether people could vote properly and so on, that it would delegitimize the referendum. Philippe put an enormous amount of time and energy into making sure it ran smoothly. He appointed a control commission of five uh, eminent uh, public servants and jurists to monitor it. And a few days before the referendum, 250 French officials, judges, uh, and so on, came to staff every polling booth around the country. Um, I interviewed a number of them. They arrived, and they were housed at the University of New Caledonia in Nouméa for a couple of days, given briefings, they were sent out in ones and twos all around the country both in the capital, Nemea, but to the furthest islands and and out in the bush and so on, so that there would be a French official assisting the local mayor who's in charge of each polling booth for the voting on the referendum. In the middle of a pandemic, people in New Caledonia are quite anxious. Will they send another 200-odd people to come and go to every village and town in the the country? Um, And what are the risks of that? Do they have to come... Instead of arriving on a flight for three days before the referendum, do they have to come and do quarantine? And New Caledonia has had a system of quarantine that's quite strict. They have had, uh, until recently, 18 cases, all of which came from international travellers arriving. And New Caledonia clamped down very quickly on uh, international travellers and set up a system where you had to spend up to three weeks in quarantine if you came in on a flight Two weeks in a hotel, a bit like we have in Australia, and then a week at home. And the French, because they believe in, uh, you know, that it's part of France, said, no, no, we want to set up our own quarantine regime. And they thought that the three weeks was too long. So there's been a battle going on between the government of New Caledonia, and particularly the pro independence can in the government, and the French High Commissioner and the French government, with French laws overriding New Caledonia's control. Over border quarantine and so on. So it's been a a debate over the last couple of months, not helped by the fact that New Caledonia now has 21 cases, pretty low by global standards and certainly by French standards. And the last three people who've um, been confirmed positive with COVID have been two police officers and a French military soldier who've come in on the rotation of French you know, armed forces uh, that, that happens regularly every year or so um, as troops that are deployed to New Caledonia as part of the French armed forces are sent back to, to France, uh, new troops coming in. And the FLNKS, uh, leaders like Daniel Goer, who's the president of the largest pro-independence party, have been saying we don't want people rotating through but given the level of COVID that we see in armed forces in France, in the United States, we presume in China and other places, um, and uh, so there's a lot of concern about that. Um, and you only have to look at the French Navy, where the French aircraft carrier come also is basically shut down because a significant part of its crew were, were diagnosed with um, with COVID. There's been cases of French air crew flying through the territories who've been diagnosed with COVID even after they have landed and uh, um, you know, supposedly had been in quarantine before they left and then they hadn't been in quarantine. So there's a lot of concern about how the referendum will run with the movement of people out of the capital, Namibia into rural areas which haven't seen any cases of community transmission.
1: When you're talking about the International Observers for an election, the same thing is happening in Bougainville where International Observers can't come for that election?
4: Yeah, it's tricky. Um, for the 2018 referendum in New Caledonia, as I say, I was there as a journalist and there was a media pack uh, with uh, some small number of journalists, but significant uh, media coverage from New Zealand, from Australia, lots of French journalists, obviously, um, one from Japan that was there. There was delegations sent by the Pacific Islands Forum and the Melanesian Spearhead Group, the regional and sub-regional organisations of neighboring Pacific countries, so Dame Meg Taylor, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, led a delegation of officials, and uh, so did the Melanesian Spearhead Group under uh, then Ambassador uh, Yalvoli of Fiji, and they came to see what was happening in a fellow Melanesian country, New Caledonia. I met, uh, as I was tracing around reporting on referendum day, I met some of the forum officials who were monitoring the conduct of the election. So just as France had observers monitoring the conduct of voting and so on, seeing whether there were disputes in the polling booths, as as, as happens in these things, the United Nations sent a team under an Algerian diplomat who were specifically involved in all the logistics of the elections, not on the outcome of the politics, but just to see that the referendum was run according to UN practices and principles of a fair vote. Coming up in, in a couple of months' time, it's going to be much more complex to bring in such international scrutiny, whether from the forum, from the UN, from the citizens' groups and media, that would ensure that the voting was carried out in the same way. Um, And I think that's going to be an issue of some dispute. I think everyone recognises that this referendum, which is still going ahead in October as we speak, is going to be held under quite trying circumstances, that although there aren't many cases of COVID in New Caledonia, that's because of the strict border clampdown that has maintained this pretty rigorous uh, uh, regime of testing and and, uh, and hotel quarantining.
1: No possibility it could be delayed?
4: It has been delayed already from September until um, October. They've delayed it for a, a month or so already. There was discussion. The FLNKS pushed for it to be held even later. The other element of this was that the... French overseas territories have just finished municipal elections. And this is a classic example of the way in which French colonialism impacts on the overseas dependencies. Normally, municipal elections are held every few years in March, and municipal elections are controlled by the French state, by Paris, not by the local territorial governments in New Caledonia or French Polynesia or Guadeloupe or wherever. Um, it's a funny system where... You know, the Congress in New Caledonia is controlled locally, but the local town councils are run by Paris. The French system is two rounds. You might have 10 candidates running for the council, uh, for the mayor and so on, and then there's a runoff a week later of the top two candidates. The first round went ahead in early March as, as per normal, but then France delayed the second round of voting for uh, three months until just uh, earlier this month. That was appropriate in France, where there was a rapidly growing spread of COVID, and people in the French government decided that holding elections with people gathering polling booths and, and all the things that are involved in campaigning couldn't be done at a time when you know there were thousands of cases brewing in late March in uh, in Europe. But people in the overseas territories, in some cases where there were few, if any, cases of COVID at that time, said, "Hang on, we could run the elections here without the danger." Of contamination that is evident in France. We're not French. We're in a different situation than France. We have the advantage of being isolated islands, where if we've controlled, you know, movement at the borders, we've got the advantage of distance. But they said no, no, no. France said you have to postpone the municipal elections. So they've only just been run off in just in the last couple of weeks. And people in New Caledonia were saying, well, hang on, we've just been campaigning for municipal elections. Now we've got to campaign again for the referendum. And just at the practical level of you know, voter fatigue, of paying for campaigning for all the leaflets and education work and things, there's a disadvantage for the independence movement in that situation. So they've been pushing for the referendum to be put back. But the French government and the anti-independence forces want to get it over quickly, thinking that they can win and wanting to get it out of the way before it becomes an election issue in two years' time, in the French presidential elections when Macron stands off against Marine Le Pen, probably, and some say Edouard Philippe, the current, uh, the the outgoing Prime Minister, who's just been kicked out of his job, or resigned, but jumped before he was pushed, Um, he may run as well uh, from the right to challenge Macron. So domestic interests in France are overriding the practical realities on the ground, in the overseas dependencies in every ocean of the world.
1: So the vote on the 4th of October, that's the final one, Nick?
4: No, there can be a third vote. The system that was set up, and it's quite unique in the history of decolonisation, is that there could be up to three referenda, not one. The scheme was that if a referendum, as happened in 2018, voted no against independence, then a third of the Congress could call for a second referendum. A third of New Caledonia's Congress could vote. The date for the first referendum had to be set by three-quarters of the Congress, and the idea was that it would force supporters and opponents of independence to come together and agree on a date, and that was what happened after a lot of head-banging back in 2017-2018. But the Accord makes provision that two years after the first referendum, a second one can be held, if a third of the Congress agrees. Now, the independence movement makes up, you know, nearly half the the Congress. Um, So it was clear that that would give the independence movement the right to call for a second vote, and that's what's happened. The same process can happen again a third time. If the vote in October is negative against independence, then the Congress can once again call another vote for a year or two down the track. The belief is that, you know, on both sides, the time will advantage their case. Um, the independence movement is hoping that even if for the second referendum they don't win, that they increase their vote beyond the 43% in favour of independence that they got last time. So if they can get to 45% or 47%, just to show that the momentum is there, that will concentrate the mind of citizens of European or Walesian heritage and so on in New Caledonia who don't want independence, that it will show that the the desire for independence, particularly amongst indigenous Canucks and amongst some other islanders, is strong and ain't going away. The Numera Accord says if after three votes people continue to vote no, then it's back to the drawing board that there needs to be negotiations. And the FLNKS has said at that point we don't want to talk to the anti-independence parties in Ukraine, we want to talk to the colonising power, we want to talk to the French state. A third vote for independence could mean a fully independent sovereign country uh, for a five-year transition, say. Three negative referendums, three times people saying no, even narrowly, will create, I think, a political crisis and, and um, some interesting discussions. Whether the Kanak movement will recognise that's it and accept some form of, say, free association or statute of autonomy or whether they will want to keep going in some way, and that will be very interesting times for not just New Caledonia, but for neighbouring countries, including Australia.
1: A very turbulent history of New Caledonia back in the 20th century.
4: It parallels in all sorts of ways. Australia, you know, New Caledonia is a settler colonial state, like Australia. Um, New Caledonia was originally a prison. Um, You know, the French colonised and annexed New Caledonia in 1853 and one of its earliest uses was as a prison, particularly after the Paris Commune, the Great Revolt in 1870 when the Parisians rose up and took over the Commune. After the Commune was crushed, many people were deported to New Caledonia and also people from Algeria who rose up in 1870-71 were deported to New Caledonia. So it served as a prison just as Australia did with the First Fleet. Over time, however, there was colonial settlement and free settlement and the best lands on the main island of New Caledonia, Grand Terre, were taken by free settlers and carved up. Once again, there were Kanak revolts against that in 1878. In 1913, there were rebellions against colonisation and settlement just as there were frontier wars in Australia with uh, Aboriginal peoples across the country resisting the theft of their land. Um, So there are parallels, not not exact parallels, but certainly significant ones, about the colonization process. And the the difference is that France remains a colonial power and administering power into the 21st century, in not only the Pacific, but in other oceans of the world, in in the Indian Ocean and so on. New Caledonia, because of the struggle in the 1980s, because of the creation, firstly, of the Independence Front, in uh, 1981, broadened out to the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front um, in 1984, the FLNKS mobilised a whole range of forces, particularly in the Kanak community, but also supporters from other areas. And that um, independence struggle has continued to this day. Many of the achievements of the 1988 agreement and then the subsequent Numira Accord, this framework agreement signed in 1998, have brought can Act representatives, pro-independence representatives into the government, there's a collegial government of New Caledonia. It's unique in French law where New Caledonia's Namir Accord is now entrenched in the French Constitution and indeed in its own law. So New Caledonia has this pathway towards a referendum on self-determination that's not there, say, for the people of French Polynesia. You know, French Polynesia has an autonomy statute dating back to 2004, but it doesn't have a, a constitutionally entrenched process giving them the right to vote in a referendum on self-determination so it was the struggle of the Kanak people that's still going on that has created this thing that's unique in French law uh, because France in its constitution its 1958 constitution says France is one and indivisible if you're French you're French whether you live in Tahiti or live in, in Paris you have the same rights you know if you're uh, a citizen of New Caledonia, you can vote for the European Parliament because you're French. Um, most people don't. Most Kanaks, certainly most indigenous Kanaks, don't bother because uh, they see the European Parliament as, as largely irrelevant to their uh, needs as, as uh, people of the Pacific. But, um, you know, the French is different to, to British traditions of two tiered citizenship. And you see that at the moment where the Brits, for example, are changing the rights of people from Hong Kong. You know, when, when Britain handed over Hong Kong to the capitalist rotors in Beijing back in 1997 without giving full democratic rights to people of Hong Kong or full citizenship rights for those born before 1997, um, they're busy amending British law at the moment to give greater rights of residency and potentially citizenship to people from Hong Kong. And Australia's talking about the same thing because... Uh, um, you know, Hong Kong is a second tier of, of democratic rights compared to, to that. So the French are different. The French say, if you live in a French overseas territory, you are French. And that's one of the problems, because the Kanaks and the Maui people of New Caledonia of French Polynesians, say, well, no, we're not. We're Pacific Islanders. We're an indigenous people living in the Pacific. We are a colonized people in international law, and we have the rights of colonized people. Complex situation.
1: This. Preparation for the vote takes place, as you've mentioned, at a time of COVID-19. Tourism greatly impacted by this.
4: Yeah, particularly for French Polynesia and to a certain extent for New Caledonia. You know, a lot of Pacific Island countries have managed to weather the crisis. It was notable that the, the places in the Pacific that have had COVID, crisis, uh, COVID cases confirmed were the territories like Guam, uh, Hawaii, US State of Hawaii, uh, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, that um, didn't have full control and governance over their borders. Um, New Caledonia has certain advantages over over the others because it has some rights under the Namir Accord, this constitutionally entrenched framework agreement for their status, different to French Polynesia. Um, Fiji had some cases, although they managed to by and large get get control of it to limit community transmission pngs just with eight million people it's big country and it's inevitable with the land border with indonesia there's going to be problems but most pacific countries because of distance and because they clamped down right at the beginning back in march even in february um on international travel have um have managed to limit the spread most pacific island countries don't have cases of covid you know tonga Samoa, Vanuatu, uh, Kiribati, Tuvalu, many of the Pacific countries haven't had a case, but that's come at the expense of incredible economic damage, and they're going through the same sort of debate about how to reopen the economy and whether they can safely reopen international borders, um, simply because, uh, like Marshall Islands, way back at the beginning of March, just banned all international flights coming into the country. At the time, people thought this was a pretty extreme step, but it was a sensible step for them. Because the health systems are relatively weak. There's no uh, strong intensive care units, for example, or ventilators. PNG, I think, for example, has got about 10 ventilators until more have been provided recently for the whole country, 8 million people. The potential in these developing and sometimes least developed countries for the, the impact on the health systems is enormous and terrible. And the safety that, that has been gained so far has been at the expense of enormous poverty for the most vulnerable members of the community where, you know, Fiji's gross domestic product, about 40% of revenues, came from tourism. Uh, You know, cheap package holidays for Australians, New Zealanders, more recently Chinese, and others, Japanese, honeymooners and whatever, going to Fiji, similarly French Polynesia. That tourism has has collapsed with an enormous impact on not just the hotel chains but on the vast variety of people who benefited from tourism. Everything from the bus drivers who pick people up at the airport to the women who make handicrafts to sell to tourists uh, to uh, people who got jobs in the hotels as cleaners and as cooks, as tour guides, as entertainers, uh, musicians. Uh, you know, it's, it's as, as we've seen in, in our arts and hospitality sector, there's enormous economic ramifications. In some cases too, these are countries that have had the double whammy of a cyclone passing through in recent times. Cyclone Harold, which hit uh, the Pacific earlier this year in February, hit Vanuatu, hit Fiji, has created enormous problems for the psych- post-cyclone response because of the difficulty of, you know, international support coming in and providing goods and services to help with rebuilding has been constrained because of the fear of contamination. Many developing countries are doing it tough. The Pacific's managed to avoid some of the health problems, but at these economic and social expenses, the burden has been borne by the poorest mem- community who don't have the resources to respond and by governments that don't have the financial uh, clout to do what Australia's done, which is things like job keeper and job seeker and you know, subsidies for business, subsidies for employment and so on.
1: The familiar voice on Tuesday home time of researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. Hi,
5: Hi. we're from Raybrook College and you're listening to Free cr Community Radio on 8.55am.
1: In recent weeks and months we've talked about mines and proposed mines in the countries to our north, PNG, Bougainville and the Philippines. And today we're going to feature the Oceania Gold Mine at the Dipio in the Philippines. The people of Novaya wiskaya area, where the mine has caused huge environmental, social and human rights abuses, are asking for support. Kevin Bracken, an activist for the people, explains the latest developments in the long battle to close the Australian-Canadian-owned mine. And the people are looking for support. Kevin, can you explain what's been occurring in the past year since the Provisional Government enforce the suspension of the mining project.
0: Technical and financial assistance, which is a technical name for their mining permit, expired in 2019. On the 1st of July, the people in, in the area set up a barricade, supported by the local governor of the native Vizcaya, Carlos Bledeo, because it's not in the interest of the people in the bay of Vizcaya they to have that mining. There was certain commitments made by Mining company when it took the permit out, saying it was going to invest money back into the community and carry out social activities, it hadn't contributed any money at all. I think it had built a primary school. and that was it, but there was a lot of things that weren't done. When people's houses were, um, they needed to take them over. They were forced out of their houses. 187 people were forced out of their houses. So they were pulled out of unnecessary use of violence and destruction. For example, on the 28th, 22nd of March, Emily O'Brienic was trying to stop the demolition of his neighbour's house Manuel bidet because he was sleeping in the house when they were starting to pull it down. So he was restrained by two security guards. He was shot by another person, and this was in the presence of the uh, Philippine National Police. People who were actually opposing the mine and being charged with various charges like um, against the forestry code and things like that, just minor things. In a large part, the Philippines National Police had been acting as a security agency for them, but they were stationed inside the mine. The area in the of Vescalia is one of the richest agricultural areas in the Philippines and for that reason there's a lower rate of um, poverty in that area. Just for example, the Cayeng Valley contributed 1.77% of the GDP to the Philippines, just the agricultural produce. The total contribution to the Philippines' GDP for all the mining companies in the Philippines, and this going and Gold, is one of them, was 0.65% of the GDP. So it's not contributing Things to the, to the um, Philippines, you know, that wealth's been taken out, and the people in the area, the water supply there have got high levels of lead, manganese, cadmium, sulfur iron, arsenic and selenium there's twice the copper concentrates permitted for agricultural use and eight times the maximum level for the survival of organisms in the waters coming out of there it can damage the um, Philippines economy much more than what is contributing to it. in two thousand and nineteen. Carlos Padilla, who was a local governor of Navarre Vescaya, ordered that the financial and technical agreement had expired and the mine should close. And supporting that, the people, local people, set up a uh, barricade, and it's been broken once by um, about a hundred members of the Philippines National Police and the Army to escort some trucks in to put um, diesel inside there. They've tried to keep the mine going. They ran a appeals at the Philippines Appeals Court against the decision of the Regional Trial, who upheld the decision of the um, Governor that the mine should be closed. And that was, I think it was on the 7th of July. The results came back and and the um, Philippines Appeals Court knocked back appeal against the decision of the Regional Trial Court and they said, no, the mine's permit has expired. There's no reason why it should be continuing operation. We've started an appeal for some support for the people who are running the People's Barricade. We're collecting the money through McGrath in Melbourne. So can you give you the details if you'd like, James?
1: Okay. I've got them here, so I'll give them later.
0: Oceana Gold has said that they're not going to accept that and they're going to continue on with legal proceedings too, although they've got they've lost all their cases and there's no real legal reason why they should be trying to operate that mine now. Because of the technical and financial assistance permit has expired. It was a twenty five year lease. This is actually setting precedence because this was the first mine given under the Philippines new mining law. The company's trying to test out grounds to see where they can go from here. But the decisions that have been made by the Regional Court and the appeals court saying that the people who are putting that barricade on are complying with the, the law and the it's guy Guard who's not complying with the Philippine law by continuing to try and operate that mine.
1: The problem is that Oceania Gold aren't going to give up this easily, are they? They're used to having their own way.
0: That's right. And I suppose you can see what happened with um, their decision, with their trying to sue the government of El Salvador for $300 million because they wouldn't give them a permit for the mine. They've told their shareholders that they're finished with El Salvador. And, you know, the the country of El Salvador was the first in the world to ban all metalliferous mining. Due in large part to the actions of Oceana Gold. Now, even though they've got a law in there saying you can't mine, they've got two companies still operating there: Minerals Togos and I forget the name of the other one. But it's it's in there trying to sow a bit of discontent within the community and trying to say that yeah, we're we're green miners, you know, we look after the environment. When it's the total opposite. If you have a look at the the mine in um, Davipio, it's a massive mine, they tried to expand it, which was not backed by the people too, without um, proper permits. They've built it twice the size of what it was originally done in the environmental effects statement. What they're doing is what what a lot of other developed countries are doing, they're ripping all the wealth out of the Philippines and taking it out overseas and leaving nothing except poison environments for the people who live there. So it's very hard. And on top of that, what makes it difficult for the people who are opposing the mine is that... um, Last Saturday, the Philippines Anti-Terrorism Act uh, became war. So under that, it's a draconian uh, piece of legislation which muddles the decision between where someone's a pro- having a protest or where they're a, a, um, a terrorist. has the ability to anyone who opposes anything that the government does or big corporations do to be labelled a terrorist and exactly what they've got here. They can lock you up for, for good, They don't have to have any trials, they can detain you, I think, for 24 days. And the disappointing part is, too, they believe that the Australian government's had a a hand in writing this legislation and also supplying military support to the Philippines in their crackdown on anyone who's dissenting from what the government wants or what big corporations are doing. A couple of petitions out now which we'd like people to support. One's uh, condemning the Philippines for enacting this anti-terrorism legislation, which equates anyone who protests with being a terrorist. Can you give them the details for that?
1: Yes, I can. Well known now, isn't it, Kevin, that the Australian government's been involved in the Philippines with the army, Australian army, for quite a while now.
0: They have. What they're doing is following the US anti-insurgency the same as what they did in Vietnam, what they did in El Salvador, what they did in Iraq. So just identify anyone who's a leader, threaten them, you know, sometimes threaten them or sometimes just assassinate them. And the whole aim is just to get people afraid to stand up so much so that the Philippines is now the most dangerous country to be an environmental defender and it's also the second most dangerous country in the world to be a, a trade unionist because they they're being assassinated or what they call as red tagged. so it means they can be locked up or assassinated by the army and in India now it's still in a state of um, martial law down there so the army has complete um, they can choose anyone they want for that reason and you see the rubbish that comes on, you know, which has been dressed up as Australia's our support anti-terrorism there. What they're doing is just eliminating anyone who opposes a government or who opposes big development by foreign overseas com- uh, companies. So we're the second largest military supplier to the Philippines. I think we give $40 million last year, all supposed to be dressed up as anti-terrorism things. What they've done, there was a peace process that was going on in the Philippines between you know, the faction, the New People's Army and, and the Philippines government, which had been going on for a number of years. The Thursday when he was elected, says yes, I'm going support it. But I think six months after he got elected, he said, no, we are not support them. They're terrorists. Lock people up who were actually taking part in the negotiations and they've just turned the opposite way. So they're just following that US example of the anti-insurgency actions and just terrorising local communities or anyone who opposes the government or wants to stand up for human rights or trade union rights.
1: But it's not just that $40 that they're giving the Philippines. It's the fact that Australian military are on the ground in the Philippines.
0: Exactly right. We're actually down there training the Philippines in door-to-door combat. It makes you sick. You know, it's supposed to be the Australian Defence Force, and all they're doing is what we've been doing in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, terrorising people in their homes. We've got no right to be in those countries. And now we're training the Philippine uh, Philippine Army to do the same thing too. We think that when Australia's changed the name of the Australian Army, if it was the Australian Imperial Forces in about 1973, we probably should have left it because that's what we are. We're not Australia's Defence Force. They're not, acting, they're not being used. It's not the Army's fault. It's the politicians who order them over there. It's Australia's Imperial Force. We should say, let's be honest and just change the name of the Army back to what it was before because it still hasn't changed. All these wars that we've been involved in, with probably the exception of the Second World War, have been Imperial Forces. We're fighting for an empire to subjugate people, to take away their wealth, not them a right to
3: develop their own countries.
1: You said just before that the Philippines is the most dangerous country for environmental defenders and just in the last week or so, two more have been arrested and one or both charged with murder.
0: That's right. It's, a, it's what they're doing typically. The yep. 7th and ninth of July, human rights defenders generally grandpa and Dan San Andres were arrested for their involved involvement in an ambush that resulted in the death of two soldiers. They'd been detained at the Nabula municip- N- B- B- Municipal Police Station and the Philippines National Police Station in Sipicot. Cianella Nangarampa is the National Vice Chairperson of Gabriella, a grassroots alliance that aims to empower Filipino women primarily from marginalized sectors of society and help them advocate their rights the interest through collective action. Uh, Dan San Andreas is a pastor with the United Church of Christ in the Philippines and a spokesperson for Carapatan in the Bicol area region. The alliance is comprised of individuals, groups and organisations that work to promote and protect human rights in the Philippines. So what they've done is that they've targeted a number of organisations like Gabriella, Migrante, the Philippine national churches. As a terrorist organisation and communist fronts, so they're just charging people for trumped up charges. They're, you know, a lot of people have had uh, weapons and things planted on them. You know, sometimes you know men in their 70s, you know, had a village and you know machine guns planted on them and said they're terrorists. You know, on trumped up charges. So it's what's happened in the Philippines. We're supporting it. We're supporting this repression of anyone who's wanting a better a better outcome for the Filipino people. So the Philippines is one of the most indebted countries in the world. by you know, this chicanery of Western governments and corporations. But I think 60% of their GDP pays back debt. Is going back into debt repayment. So they can't, you know, run a proper education uh, programs for their for their people. They can't run the proper health
6: care. You
0: know, in, in in this COVID, you know, the Philippines has been, you know, is going through the COVID things too. People have been not allowed to made them stay in their house. They haven't been able to attend their farms and do things like that and look after the the, um, agricultural stuff. Instead of the government, you know, helping them with... They're um, repressing the people more than ever by just bringing this um, Anti-Terrorism Act in in the middle of of a coronavirus pandemic. So instead of helping the people, they're actually causing more repression.
1: And there's still this campaign to get the United Nations... Human Rights Council involved,
0: how's that going? United Nations Human Rights Committee found in July last year that there was massive human rights violations going on in the Philippines. I think something like 35,000 people being killed in the, the war on drug drugs, which doesn't result in any big drug dealers, but they're all poor people being assassinated. Duterte said, well, we're not allowing the um, UN Human Rights Commission to run a delegation in there. So it just speaks for itself. This is a country that we're supporting, supporting their military and supporting their, training them in door-to-door combat when it's used to repress the people of that country. It's a disgrace for Australia's actions.
1: So it's up to the grassroots people to support their their comrades in the Philippines?
0: That's right. You'll never read this in the Herald Sun. You'll never read it you know, in Sky News or anything else. Thank God we've got free CR to let, people, let the true story get out there. The story that the mainstream in Australia never never puts out that we're always the good guys, you know. We're helping the US, you know, being the policeman of the world. It's all bullshit, you know. And everyone who's who's got two connecting brace cells can know this too. And so it's a shame, you know, that the news is suppressed so much in this country. And what we get is just bullshit from the mainstream news corporations. Okay, Kevin. Thanks, Jan.
1: Activist Kevin Bracken. If you'd like to support the people on the barricades in Didipio, I'll give you the details for banking money. The account is called Migrante, M-I-G-R-I-N-T-E, Melbourne. BSB 633000. Account number 120724224. It's the Bank of Bendigo. And donations need to be sent with the note supporting People's Barricade. I'll repeat that: my grantee, Melbourne, six three three zero 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 one two zero seven two four two two four Bendigo Bank. And donations need to be sent with the note supporting People's Barricade. And if you want to sign those um, petitions against the Terror Act The address is three fifty dot org slash Asia slash junk terror law. That's three fifty dot org slash Asia slash junk terror law. No country
2: no form
5: back to the peasant to the falah ball.
7: The Israeli government's planned annexation of up to 30% of the West Bank of Palestine has sent shockwaves around the world. Free Palestine Melbourne will examine the implications in a forum, The Palestinian Struggle in the Era of Annexation, 7.30pm on Wednesday, the 22nd of July. Speakers Hanan Ashrawi, Yara Harawa, Meher Maghribi, will explore what it means for Palestinians for the future of our Palestinian state and for our advocacy, activism and the ongoing support of the Palestinian people. Register online at www.fpmelbourne.org fpmelbourne.org. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR
2: supporter.
1: It would appear that Australia is moving towards a dangerous period, anticipating war, possibly in the not-too-distant future. Turn on to or read just about any media outlet, and the topic is the danger we face from China. Ironically, our largest economic trading partner, sometimes listening to government ministers criticising China, there's a death wish to destroy that trade, which would be catastrophic for all of us. Why then is peace not an option? Why are we instead being told we must increase military spending to obscene levels? Stuart Reiss, human rights activist, poet, novelist, author, inaugural recipient of the Jerusalem Peace Prize, founding director of the Sydney Peace Foundation, has been putting his thoughts to paper with an article in John Menendu's Pearls and Irritations titled Make Peace Not War the language of military strategists. When I spoke to Stuart, I put the quote to him from Peter Jennings, Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He was replying to a question whether Australia can afford the proposed $270 billion increase in the defence budget for the next 10 years. And he said, quote, we can't afford not to, unquote.
7: Correct. Look, if you are only... Schooled in one form of thought, and he's an expert on military issues, security, then he's almost professionally obliged to say, well, he feels that way to say what he said. When you say there's no alternative, then that ignores all the other intellectual, political, artistic possibilities. That's my problem with it. I mean, it's a bit like Mrs. Thatcher saying the lady's not for turning. In other words, You either listen to me or there's there's nothing else. If we just take the threat of the possession of nuclear weapons, you'd have to say that one commitment to security was to do everything possible to disarm the world of nuclear weapons. So no evidence that spending $270 on new weaponry is going to do anything for disarmament. So that's my response. To say there's no alternative is is somewhat fatalistic. It's a bit like people saying, you know, all the, the violence men's violence towards women is in human nature <laughs> there has to be an alternative
1: and then of course it's all compounded by the the language of war
7: yeah it's everywhere i mean the um, you don't have to look at the um, some of the tabloids, the daily telegraph or listen to the dreadful shock jocks in um, sydney i'm sure you don't have them in them you listen to, to men arguing with their elbows you watch the parliament where there's very little humor and not much subtlety. It's all about winning. It's all about dominating. And that, that implies that Mike is right. And we have to get away from that because life can be lived in a much more creative rewarding way by not talking about war it can start with domestic violence for example or we can get, we can proceed to bullying in the workplace or we can proceed to People throwing their weight around in um, in dictatorships and democracies so It doesn't have to be and all that is just on a continuum to the violence of war
1: and that manipulation of the public about the period today
7: Absolutely. I mean, it's all about chess beating and stagger and is the alleged great man protecting us. So you generate the fear and say, look, don't worry about it. I'll, you know, I'm going to create 57 new naval vessels and um, we're going to buy a lot more missiles from the United States and just um, don't bother. I will protect you. That um, I mean, freedom freedom in, in, the, in the world, but in particular democracies, it's largely about freedom from fear. You have to overcome fear, not generate it.
1: And then you look at the equipment that they're talking about, purchasing or building or whatever. There's no reasoning in that about by the time they're all built, they're all obsolete anyway.
7: There's a good chance about that I've heard very senior naval personnel saying, well, we're unlikely to have the staff to run these vessels or to manage this equipment. <laughs> There's all sorts of where the are norms as to why we, why we would do that. Allegedly, the commitment to this new weaponry is because that's from the big neighbour up the road. We need a, in a sophisticated culture. We need a debate about what you mean by security. Arguably, most secu- the best form of security for all Australian citizens And for the people wandering the streets on bridging visas, is universal health insurance. Nothing to do with guns and ships and so on. And we need, we must have that debate about the the guarantee of income, the guarantee of a of a a roof over your head, uh, the guarantee of education that doesn't cost a fortune. That's what security is about.
5: Well, let's
1: talk a bit more about peace. It's not a very popular subject with our politicians, is it? And indeed with many other countries as well. What would peace cost in relation to preparation for war?
7: Peace would be dirt cheap by comparison with war. We wouldn't destroy ourselves, we wouldn't destroy the environment, we wouldn't um, hand over a cruel legacy to the next generation. I mean, and, and peace would be an enormous boost for business, you know, whether it's in the home or the workplace or, or in, in educational institutions or, or religious institutions. You have to struggle for peace, or, or rather, I would say peace with justice. I'm slightly interested in peace, but I am 1,000 times more interested in peace with justice. That's what, that's what we should be talking about. The famous German playwright, who said justice is the bread of the people. And he's talking about, as he said, just as daily bread is necessary, so is daily justice. It is even necessary several times a day.
1: Well, not only that, I mean, the United Nations, way back in 1978, you've quoted that, declared every human being has the right to live in peace.
7: Absolutely. We foolishly treat the, the UN as some sort of... Um, peripheral operation that we contribute to occasionally. They, I mean, the whole charter of the UN, which, as I've said, grew out of the ashes of the Second World War, was to try to produce a world living in peace. That was what the charter was about. That was what they, that was why the, the Never Again slogan.
1: Peace education. You're pretty keen on it's, that?
7: Well, yeah, because in a way, millions of people are listening, Jan. It's really... Trying to, you know, the exchange of ideas about education. And, and it's about what I also refer to as a language for humanity. And it can be taught from nursery school to primary school to secondary to, to, uh, to university and so on. I mean, I'm always appalled that students could graduate from universities without knowing about the 30 clauses of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Not very difficult to teach that. Every other freedom that we take for granted has has been built around those 30 clauses, even if if they're too easily forgotten.
1: But peace is not good for the military-industrial complex, is it? And they've got a lot of power around the world now.
7: They've got far too much
1: power. On the other hand, if you examine,
7: I suspect if you examine the... The work of the, um, the military forces in Australia, you'd find that a large amount of their time is is to be spent on peacekeeping. So I'm not sure what training they get in that, but peacekeeping is crucial all along. The, the police, the, the police are often yanked in to keep the peace. They may not have the best form of training for it, but they're used as the only front line forms of intervention that that we have. Part of what we're talking about is the language, the philosophy and the practice of non-violence because it's good for your mental health and it's good for your physical health. That's the vaccination against war. That's the the vaccination against violence that we should be enthusiastic about.
1: And even more reason why we should sign the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons.
7: Absolutely, only only our subservience to the United States and thereby the other nuclear powers—Israel, Britain, France—is stopping Australia. Being Australia needs to grow up and be have the courage to be a bit independent. We have to try to imagine the benefits of a world without nuclear weapons, which would be could possibly be a thousand times more destructive than COVID-19.
1: Well, New Zealand can do it. Why can't we?
7: While New Zealand's grown up, New Zealand uh, has, um, has a sense of its own confidence about its own identity, not not related to dependency on mother or father figures across great oceans. I think that's, um, that's why there's a very conservative, intolerant, dogmatic establishment uh, press. You only have to think of that dreadful political correspondent for the Australian great Sheridan, and listen to the nonsense, the dangerous nonsense that he speaks to see why Australia can't develop its own independence in, in particular in foreign policy. Even Malcolm Fraser in, in his, his last significant book before he died, called Dangerous Allies, already raised these questions about Australia's need for independence.
1: Nevertheless, Stuart, do you believe that people are not going to just accept this like we might have a few years ago, that younger people are questioning the way our governments are going?
7: It's difficult to know because we're now asked to go and um, retreat and live in our little bubbles. I know, I know social media is um, allegedly keeping everyone in contact with one another, but how much that affects a massive change in public consciousness. I'm, I'm not sure. If you look at what's going on in Britain, you can see that this new Labour leader, Keir Starmer, is giving hope to people, although he faces um, a, a Tory majority of 80 in the parliament. But because the guy is bright, visionary, dignified, you've got significant leadership. But but I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that the, you know, it's, it all depends on the leadership from the top because um, many of the wonderful initiatives that are going on right at this moment in response to the, to the pandemic are from the, from the bottom up. They're from gorgeous, ordinary citizens who we usually don't hear of but have proved to be the most important people, such as nurses, cleaners, different other uh, health personnel, garbage collectors, all that, those are the people on whom we depend.
1: Well, at least in this situation, we haven't followed the role of the U.S. in the way that Trump has covered this well, pandemic. Sure,
7: sure, but that's largely because we, it's not just about the strictness of lockdown, but we've had years of commitment to public health, public hospitals, universal health insurance. So, at least even though the, the right wing forces struggle against it because they think everybody should, everybody 's an individual can fight for their own interests, so we, so we were prepared oddly enough, we were prepared for it because we we have had policies in particular with regard to universal health insurance, which have been about a common good america 's distinctly indifferent to a common good because it thinks that everybody everybody should be gun-toting individual. That's the major structural difference between Australia's response and, and, and America's.
1: Looking at it from a personal point of view, Stuart, how has this pandemic affected your life over the last four months or so?
7: I've had, I've had to do a lot more writing. I've, had, I've been deluged with requests to, for writing commitments. And because I haven't been stuck in traffic jams, because travel has been restricted, I suppose I've had space to I've had space to get on with it. I mean, there's a sense of punishment restrictions. I can't we can't go and see our grandchildren, but um, in many ways we're not homeless. We have good health services. We live in a beautiful environment. So uh, we remain
1: pretty privileged. Well, just the opposite thing is the way that the people of Palestine are living and have been living for a long time. And now we have the Israeli government intent on annexing up to another 30% of the West Bank. And you've titled your paper, Politics of Deceit, the US-Israel annexation of Palestine. Surely they've already annexed a fair, fair bit of it.
7: Well oh, yeah, look, uh, that's a good question, put uh, but a uh, uh, good Associate of mind, Gideon Levy, brilliant, brave Israeli correspondent for the newspaper he argues that this means that all people about the two-state policy delusion, it's been a delusion for, for years, but it seems... Unthinking politicians to keep the hopes for a two state solution when if they only spend a little bit of time on the ground, they would see that that's an impossibility. Yeah, I mean, the, look, the crushing of Palestine is again another terrible example of this collusion, cowardly collusion with the notion that might is right, and that if you stigmatize certain people as not really being human, not really being worthy, that entitles powerful people, powerful organisations, powerful countries to do what they like. And the world, in particular the European Union, Australia, and America of course, has given the Israelis a blank check to do what they like.
1: But this annexation is, is different too, isn't it? Because what they're planning to take is the, the food bowl of Palestine.
7: Yeah, yeah. They want the idea that there was a peace process. That's, um, well, it's. And I think I've said elsewhere that organization is is a complete misnomer. We're talking about blatant stealing or daylight robbery. That's what we're going along with. And if a gutless Australian government can't recognize that, then uh, they don't deserve to have any any power. That, That tends to refer to both the major parties, I'm afraid.
1: And once again, Australia is one of the very few people who haven't spoken out against this.
7: Yeah, because we, and for, some, for some reason or other, there seems to be constrained in the, in the DNA of the Australian political culture. Maybe it's to do with the size of American financial investments in Australian corporations. The idea of ethics or human rights is completely of no interest.
1: But if they try to annex this land, they're not going to get it easily, are they?
7: Well, well, they've already got it. Everybody's protesting. I mean, most countries are protesting. But the European Union, for example, is protesting. But it continues to be Israel's major trading partner. It facilitates uh, all Israeli services. So it's it's hypocritical. I think the annexation's already occurred. There are 700,000 settlers on Palestinian land. Of course, they want to take more and more. And it looks as though it looks as though that's been the objective since 1948.
1: The people who are being forced out of that land now, and as I said, the food bowl, the impact of that—they're
7: really being asked to live permanently under military occupation. That's what—that without access to land, without access to homes, without access to, you know, mm-hmm. being able to supply even the modest agriculture—and
1: the world lets it happen.
7: The world lets it happen the world gets fooled into thinking that Netanyahu is um, an ally of ours because we're all against terrorism, whatever that's supposed to be. I've said elsewhere, by all means, let's take terrorism seriously, but also realize that in statistical terms, the worst terrorists are people who've been wearing the uniforms of the state all over the world. If you look at the number of people who've lost their lives, lost their homes, badly been injured, they're the victims of, of states, of state terrorism, state-organized terrorism, from South America to Saudi Arabia to Britain, America, Australia, and, and so on. We need the courage to acknowledge that as well.
1: And, of course, the fact that Israel, whatever it does, it's militarily and economically... Propped up by the U.S.
7: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's very difficult to decide what is America and what is Israel. It's all of a it's all of a piece. If the you know the billionaire, the casino billionaires, the Adolphins, provide a small fortune for the U.S. Republican Party on the condition that it supports whatever Israel right,
3: wants, then you can't really distinguish between Israel and Palesa.
1: And that was Stuart Rees peace activists par excellence. And this Wednesday evening, the Free Palestine Melbourne Group are hosting an event, a forum, The Palestinian Struggle in the Era of Annexation. And you are invited to log into that through Zoom. The speakers will be Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, PLO Executive Committee Member, PLO Department of Public Diplomacy and Policy, a Palestinian legislator, activist and scholar, Mahu magrabi Palestinian Australian journalist, feature editor at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and Dr Yara Hawawi, activist and senior policy and senior Palestinian policy fellow at Al-Shabaka. The Palestine Policy Network, Wednesday the 22nd of July. The screening times are Melbourne, 7.30 to 9 p.m. And you need to get onto Zoom to register your interest. So, what to do is either to get to the website of Free Palestine Melbourne or their Facebook page. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. The first time the outside world took notice of the genocide of the Tamil people in Sri Lanka was on July 25th, 1983. What some named the Holocaust, others the Black July Massacre. When Tamil shops, offices and restaurants in the capital's crowded city centre and main streets were burnt as police looked on. Thousands of homes were ransacked and burnt, sometimes with women and children inside leaving the Tamil people without a state. The real erosion of democracy in Sri Lanka began in 1956, with attempts through pogroms in 1956, 58, 71, 77 and 81, using hoodlums to intimidate and silence the Tamil people in their legitimate constitutional demands, closing all avenues to discussion and debate. In 1984, the Tamil Association in Melbourne Approached 3CR for a program to give a voice to the people without a voice, and soon after Tamil Voice was broadcast in English in a 30-minute pre-record which focused on politics and news from Sri Lanka. In 1989, Sabesh Sam Mugam, a qualified accountant, arrived in Melbourne, and soon after he became a new voice on the program. Thus began a long relationship between Sabesh and 3CR. Sadly, the much-loved and respected member of the Tamil community is no longer with us. I asked you, Pradesh, community member, to join with me in a tribute to Savesh. A commemorative event will be held for Sabesh once the pandemic allows. I asked you when it was he first met Sabesh.
6: I met him in the late 90s, I can't remember the exact year, I've actually heard his voice on 3CR, I think those days it was on Mondays, I think the days kept changing, so I heard his voice and then I actually met him in a community gathering once and uh, that's when someone told me this is the voice, this is the face of the voice um, which rocks in 3CR. And
1: what did you think of the, the programs that he was doing when you were listening to him?
6: Those days, there was no internet at all, and radio was the only means by which we knew what was happening back home. Salvation's uh, program was very powerful those days because it was informative, sharing news and views from uh, from home ground. He he was passionate about it, and and everything he did in that radio program, he was passionate about the struggle for the Tamils, uh, and he articulated it quite well.
1: He was a very important part of that struggle, wasn't he?
6: He was. I see him as a messenger, and he articulated the the views uh, of the Tamil Tigers uh, and and the, and the larger Tamil nationalistic struggle very clearly in Tamil, uh, in, in the Tamil language. He wrote his, his his speeches. His recordings were carried all around the world, and he kind of galvanised the people through the uh, the radio waves. Is um, what I would say.
1: Well, as you said, it's not, not only through the media, he was part of the community as well. Talk about his role within the wider Tamil community.
5: Yeah, he
6: did a lot for the refugees. He, he, was, um, he, he was pretty much part of every community organization. Um, he was a multifaceted person. He was uh, good on radio. He would be going, one day, he would be going and raising money and, uh, for the refugees. Uh, he'd be coming up with uh, plans to rehabilitate them or, or help them out. He would be part of the, uh, the the Ceylon Tamil Association at that time. I think he was the vice president for a very long time of the, uh, the Ceylon Tamil Association, and then it got renamed as Elam Tamil Association after that. He's a writer. He's an avid reader. He was into literature, Tamil literature. He was broadly read, so he would be speaking in a, in a literature platform one day, and then he would be talking about politics the other day. Yeah, I can keep going. You know, uh, He talks about cricket. He knows a lot about cricket. Uh, he knows about history. I haven't met such a knowledgeable uh, person, broadly read, uh, and with a single-minded passion for the struggle at the same time uh, in, in Australia.
1: And he did return to Sri Lanka a number of times.
6: Many times during the peace times he did, uh, because he had security issues returning in, 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 uh, in the wartime. So he returned almost uh, every few months he would be going back and he, I remember him coming back and, um, elaborating me uh, on how he met, uh, the, the leader of the channel Tigers, uh, and, you know, yeah, I, I got goosebumps from the way he described it. Uh, I know he, he writes and he describes that. That was his golden moment in his life, I would say, the moment he met uh, his idol or his role model and the uh, the channel leader.
1: Can you talk about that a little bit more, what he said?
6: Yeah, I remember him telling me that he was standing in front of the leader, being speechless, shaking his head, that, and his tears running down his eyes, and how emotional he was. And he, he said he couldn't speak for a, for a few minutes and until, the, until the, the, the moment sank in him. That's when he started talking to him. And I, he actually ended up in kind of having a constructive argument with him as well. He's, he's, and he had the courage and the guts to do that as well, to put his views across. So, yeah, uh, I think if you, towards his latter part of his life, on his Facebook, social media, he kept sharing those photos which he took with the leader. Uh, I think that's something he would have carried with him uh, in his memories uh, when he went to the, went to the event uh, in his last days as well. He speaks a lot about his friend, uh, one of his friends called Narain. Uh, he was known as Yogi. He was a political leader. Uh, I think the disappearance of, of Narain or Yogi impacted him mentally a lot. Narain uh, or Yogi was one of the tens of thousands, uh, about 10,000 people who believe have had disappeared or been surrendered or, or been handed over to the Sri Lankan military forces and have disappeared and whose who's whereabouts are not known and not knowing what happened to him his friend who was been handed over or or surrendered to the army at the la- last phase of the war had a big impact on him
1: just go back a little the meetings with the leaders they were held in secret were they
6: yeah they were held in secret yes
1: in the correct. jungle
6: in the rainy jungle yes
1: he must have found it also difficult to get into sri lanka how would sebastian enter sri lanka
6: no, the time he went was when there was a peace talks on, there was a ceasefire on. Yes. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that bad, uh, the time he travelled at that time. This is between 2002 and 2005 is what I'm talking about.
1: And later? Uh,
6: I don't know whether he returned back to Sri Lanka after 2005. I think his last visit would have been around 2005.
1: You spoke about his friend who disappeared and he never found... What happened to him? That period, late like 2008 and into 2009, was a very, very traumatic time for all Tamils, wasn't it?
6: Yes, yes, and he was in the forefront of it. Uh, his friend disappeared in May. Uh, I think it's uh, to be precise, I think he disappeared on the 17th or 18th of May 2009, along with other political leaders of the Tamil Tigers who handed themselves to the Sri Lankan military when the war came to an end. Basin was in the forefront organising mass gatherings and protests in Melbourne, you know, uh, asking the international community to intervene to stop the war and to avoid a a human massacre uh, and and to avoid uh, war crimes from being committed. And uh, all our voices uh, were not heard, and uh, we all know what happened afterwards.
1: How did he find out what was happening? What was the connection back when that war was on, the last stages of the war. Did he have any contacts with people then?
6: Yeah, of course he did, as many of us did. Uh, I think it was a war which was not uh, reported widely in the, in the Western media. It was a war uh, without any witnesses, as, uh, as I would call it. But we had people. We had, uh, we had people who had satellite phones. We had people who had mobile phones who were constantly transmitting images of the atrocities which is being committed. Uh, he was the one who mobilised uh, the, yeah, uh, the Tamil people in, in Melbourne for the rallies. I mean, there were a number of rallies which we had in front of uh, the Federal Federation Square and many other places too. So Fabi and I was um, the, uh, one of the key leaders who, who mobilised uh, the public in Melbourne.
1: He later became ill. Do you believe it was the stress of that period that contributed to that?
6: Of course it did. The way the war ended, the way the, uh, his dream and, and, uh, kind of vanished, um, and uh, the atrocities, the images of the atrocities which were committed by these Lankan forces, uh, I think that took a big uh, big toll on him. I wouldn't be shying away from saying that he was traumatized uh, with what happened, and uh, he wasn't the same uh, salvation uh, after that.
1: He did recover, though, didn't he? And then he got sick again later.
6: Yeah, he had a spell of uh, cancer, I believe, but you know, I'm, I'm talking from a mental point of view. I don't think he took the end very well. And I, I think that affected not just him, a, a lot of people. A lot of people are still suffering from that. You know, submission and, uh, is, is one of the layers of that trauma.
1: How will you personally remember him? Or how do you personally remember him?
6: I remember him for his passion. And, you know, uh, I, I used to translate his articles in English from Tamil to English. So I worked very closely with him. I had many arguments with him on, on various matters, constructive, though, very friendly, though. I would remember them. Uh, I remember the way sometimes where he would call me up to ask, uh, and we would uh, uh, we would be discussing and debating about a suitable Tamil word uh, for an English word. because he was very particular that when he writes in Tamil that he didn't want to mix English words, And he would come up with new Tamil words and which would be then widely used. So I remember those moments uh, pretty vividly. Uh, And I remember his voice on the radio. I think uh, those late 90s, his voice, people who lived in Melbourne at that time and the people who listened to that radio think no one would forget his uh, powerful voice and the powerful message which came through the radio waves.
1: And was his program or the Tamil program broadcast in other states apart from Melbourne? Victoria?
6: Yes, yeah, it did. It did get picked up by uh, a 24-hour Tamil radio based in Sydney, and it did get broadcast uh, around Australia. And the uh, recordings of these programs were sent to Europe and the U and Canada, and they were broadcasting the local radios there as well. He, his political articles, political analysis, particularly during when the peace talks was on from 2002 to 2006-7, was very powerful. So his that uh, got uh, published in, in, in a lot of Tamil media, in newspapers and websites, as well as his uh, messages.
1: Unfortunately, the funeral was only a bit able to be attended by a small number of people. I'd imagine a great number of the Tamil people in Melbourne would have wished to have been there.
6: Yeah, I'm sure it would have been a very big funeral. I couldn't go as well uh, because it was restricted to 50 people or something. So I couldn't make it, and that uh, I regret that. But you know, I respect the uh, the family's views on that. Yeah, it, it would have been a grand set off to Sebastian Anna, who's who's dedicated his life to the struggle. And
1: also friends outside the Tamil community, it was especially esteemed here at 3CR.
6: Yeah, he's um, 3CR. He, he used the 3CR platform very constructively. As you will remember, he used to run two radiothons uh, to help the refugees back home, uh, one for the Easter Sunday and the other one on the Christmas Day. That raised uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, which went towards the uh, rehabilitation of the refugees. That, you know, the way he ran that program wasn't, wasn't easy. It was an eight or nine-hour marathon. He would be there from the time it starts to the time uh, everyone wraps. So he's the first person to come and the last person to leave on those days. That is a, a huge contribution he made to the, uh, as part of the team as well. that he made the community.
1: A hard life to follow for others.
6: It is. It is, and and, and a big loss to the society as well. Such, such a talented person. He is a walking, talking library of Tamil literature, Tamil history. Yeah, and he is is widely read. Read. I, I, I remember seeing his uh, bookshelf in his garage, in his home, uh, in his home before, uh, and it's it's massive. His collection was wide.
1: There will be a ceremony to celebrate his life,
6: though, won't there? Uh, I believe so. I believe so. When this is all settled, I'm sure there will be a a ceremony organized by the community to honor his life and celebrate his life.
1: Absolutely. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Tamil community member Jude Pradesh about his friend, Sebesh Sanmugam. Over the years I interviewed Sebesh many times and what follows is a short piece of a longer interview which I recorded in September 2009. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. It's now three months since the Sri Lankan government imprisoned up to 300,000 Tamils in camps in the north of Sri Lanka. And today I'm speaking with Sabesh, who's a programmer here at 3CR on the program Tamil Voice. Sabesh, what are you able to gauge as to the true situation in the north of Sri Lanka at the moment for the Tamil people?
5: Actually, the situation is getting worse because the rainy days, people are suffering a lot. And on top of it, you will know one incident will bring the real thing out. Recently, about a couple of days ago, the Australian UNICEF official was asked to leave Sri Lanka because he had been talking about the same thing, the plights the Tamil people are facing there. I think his name is James Hilda, the spokesman for the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. He has been giving interviews about the current situation, how the Tamil people are suffering, and his visa has been cancelled. And he was asked to go and probably he'll be leaving in a week or two weeks' time. And UNICEF and the UN are asking the Sri Lankan government as to why this has happened. That is one issue. Even an outsider or a UNICEF person or UN official trying to talk about the Tamil people's flight, they have been asked to get out from the country. Meantime, some armed groups are making money at the moment. As you speak now, if somebody has to get out from the camp, They are getting the bribe, uh, Sri Lankan rupees, 100,000 to 500,000 rupees. I think 100 rupees uh, will be around about 1,000 Australian dollars. But if they want to go to Wawunia, that is where most of the camps are in Wawunia, just to come out from the camp, you have to pay about 100,000 to 200,000 rupees. And if they are going to get out from Wawunia, from that suburb, they have to pay up to 700,000 rupees. In the meantime, the Sri Lankan government is telling that they can't release the refugees, mainly because uh, they have to check whether any tiger cadres are within them, but it's going to go on like that. In the meantime, they are, we have been told, uh, Sri Lankan government trying to colonize the Tamil areas so that Tamil people will become minority in their own land. This is what at the moment is happening, but the main problem is a lot of Expatriate Tamils, not only from Australia, from European countries and other places, they are sending money through various other organizations to give, for example, one organization will take care for one camp morning meals. Other organizations may take some clothing. So with greatest difficulty, expatriate Tamils are trying to help their people, but the Sri Lankan government is not allowing anything.
1: So they are allowed access to the camps in a limited way. Is that what you're saying?
5: There have been limited access, actually. If you say if you are a government supporter from any other country, they will take you in. They will take you in and you will be given a tour saying that to speak to people. Say, suppose I am there and you come and ask, how do you feel? And in front of the army people, I say, I'm fine. I'm fantastic. I'm doing very good. I'm, I'm all right. Everybody's looking after me. I have actually spoken to few people. It's how it's happened. A lot of people are uh, taking water inside. I mean, they are taking the bowser, and uh, they are taking water to the camps. I got friendly with uh, a few of the drivers there, and they have got mobile phones. By when they go and discharge <clears throat> water, I talk to people from here on the mobile. So they give it to us. I suppose uh, nobody will be there. Uh, nobody will be and the army. personnel wouldn't be looking at it when the truck driver, give the mobile phone to, say, one person, I will ask exactly what's happening, and all sort of stories will come out. How they are suffering, no milk, no medical funds, and also, they are opening up what you call mobile banks there, Sri Lankan government, say if you've got a relative there, a cousin or someone in the camp, you'll be sending money, uh, then they can bank it there, there and uh, so they are making the foreign exchange, and they are making, and also uh, you can pawn your Jewelry and they give money. I mean, it's going on. Uh, it go, goes on like that. It's very, very difficult. Australian government should put pressure because uh, Australian government knows exactly what's happening there. At the end of the day, they are trying to deport the Australian official there. So I don't think Australian government is g- g- putting enough pressure on them. There's no point. Just saying that we are concerned, we regret, uh, we are looking into it, nothing will happen. I mean, uh, we have been hearing this for the last seven years. All these governments saying that uh, we are worried about the Tamil people's plight and we are concerned, we will look into it, uh, we regret very much. So what's the point by making some statements? I don't think any, uh, that will help anyone.
1: That was the voice of Sebesh, much loved and respected member of both the Tamil and the 3CR community who have died recently.